Section Five of Hard Times by Charles Dickens, Chapter Nine and Ten. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hard Times, Chapter Nine, Sissy's Progress. Sissy Jupe had not an easy time of it between Mr. M. Chokumchild and Mrs. Gradgrind, and was not without strong impulses in the first months of her probation to run away. It hailed facts all day long so very hard, and life in general was open to her as such a closely ruled ciphering book that assuredly she would have run away, but for only one restraint. It is lamentable to think of, but this restraint was the result of no arithmetical process, was self-imposed in defiance of all calculation, and went dead against any table of probabilities that any actuary would have drawn up from the premises. The girl believed that her father had not deserted her. She lived in the hope that he would come back and in the faith that he would be made the happier by her remaining where she was. The wretched ignorance with which Jupe clung to this consolation, rejecting the superior comfort of knowing, on a sound arithmetical basis, that her father was an unnatural vagabond, filled Mr. Gradgrind with pity. Yet what was to be done? M. Chokumchild reported that she had a very dense head for figures, that, once possessed with a general idea of the globe, she took the smallest conceivable interest in its exact measurements, that she was extremely slow in the acquisition of dates, unless some pitiful incident happened to be concerned therewith that she would burst into tears on being required, by the mental process, immediately to name the cost of two hundred and forty-seven muslim caps at fourteen pence halfpenny, that she was as low down in the school as low could be, that, after eight weeks of induction into the elements of political economy, she had only yesterday been set right by a prattler three feet high for returning to the question, what is the first principle of this science? The absurd answer, to do unto others as I would that they should do unto me. Mr. Gradgrind observed, shaking his head, that all this was very bad, that it showed the necessity of infinite grinding at the mill of knowledge as per system, schedule, blue-book, report, and tabular statements, A to Z, and that Jupe must be kept to it. So Jupe was kept to it, and became low-spirited, but no wiser. "'It would be a fine thing to be you, Miss Louisa,' she said one night, when Louisa had endeavoured to make her perplexities for next day something clearer to her. "'Do you think so?' I should know so much, Miss Louisa. All that is difficult to me now would be so easy then. You might not be better for it, Sissy. Sissy submitted after a little hesitation. I should not be the worse, Miss Louisa. To which Louisa answered, Oh, I don't know that. 
there had been so little communication between these two both because life at stone lodge went monotonously round like a piece of machinery which discouraged human interference and because of the prohibition relative to sissy's past career that they were still almost strangers sissy with her dark eyes wonderingly directed to louisa's face was uncertain whether to say more or to remain silent you are more useful to my mother and more pleasant with me than i can ever be louisa resumed you are pleasanter to yourself than i am to myself but if you please miss louisa sissy pleaded i am oh so stupid louisa with a brighter laugh than usual told her she would be wiser by and by oh you don't know said sissy half crying what a stupid girl i am all through school year hours i make mistakes mr and mrs m chokum child call me up over and over again regularly to make mistakes i can't help them they seem to come natural to me mr and mrs m chokum child never make any mistakes themselves i suppose sissy oh no she eagerly returned they know everything well tell me some of your mistakes i am almost ashamed said sissy with reluctance but to-day for instance mr m chokum child was explaining to us about natural prosperity national i think it must have been observed louisa yeah, yes it was uh, but isn't it the same she timidly asked you had better say national as he said so returned louisa with her dry reserve national prosperity and he said now this schoolroom is a nation and in this nation there are fifty millions of money isn't this a prosperous nation girl number twenty isn't this a prosperous nation and ain't you in a thriving state what did you say asked louisa miss louisa i said i didn't know i thought i couldn't know whether it was a prosperous nation or not and whether i was in a thriving state or not unless i knew who had got the money and whether any of it was mine but that had nothing to do with it it was not in the figures at all said sissy wiping her eyes oh that was a great mistake of yours observed louisa yes miss louisa i know it was now then mr m chokum child said he would try me again and he said this schoolroom is an immense town and in it there are a million of inhabitants and only five-and-twenty are starved to death in the streets in the course of a year what is your remark on that proportion and my remark was for i couldn't think of a better one that i thought it must be just as hard upon those who were starved whether the others were a million or a million million and that was wrong too of course it is then mr m chokum child said he would try me once more and he said oh here are the stutterings statistics said louisa yes miss louisa they always remind me of stutterings and that's another of my mistakes of accidents upon the sea 
"'And I find,' Mr. M. Chokenchild said, "'that in a given time a hundred thousand persons "'went to sea on long voyages, "'and only five hundred of them were drowned or burnt to death. "'What is the percentage?' "'And I said, Miss,' here Sissy fairly sobbed, "'as confessing with extreme contrition to her greatest error. "'I said it was nothing.' "'Nothing, Sissy?' "'Nothing, miss, to the relations and friends of the people who were killed. "'I shall never learn,' said Sissy. "'And the worst of it is that although my poor father wished me to so much to learn, "'and although I'm anxious to learn because he wished me to, I'm afraid I don't like it.' "'Louisa stood looking at the pretty modest head.' as it drooped abashed before her until it was raised again to glance at her face then she asked did your father know so much himself that he wished you to be well taught too sissy sissy hesitated before replying and so plainly showed her sense that they were entering on forbidden ground that louisa added no one hears us and if any one did "'I'm sure no harm could be found in such an innocent question.' "'No, Miss Louisa,' answered Sissy, upon this encouragement, shaking her head. "'Father knows very little indeed. "'It's as much as he can do to write, "'and it's more than people in general can do to read his writing, "'though it is plain to me. "'And your mother?' "'Father says she was quite a scholar. "'She died when I was born. "'She was—' Sissy made the terrible communication nervously. She was a dancer. Did your father love her? Louisa asked these questions with a strong, wild, wandering interest peculiar to her, an interest gone astray like a banished creature and hiding in solitary places. Oh, yes, as dearly as he loves me. Father loved me first for her sake, he carried me about with him when I was quite a baby. We have never been asunder from that time. Yet he leaves you now, Sissy? Only for my good. Nobody understands him as I do. Nobody knows him as I do. When he left me for my good, he never would have left me for his own. I know he was almost broken-hearted with the trial. He will not be happy for a single minute till he comes back. "'Tell me more about him,' said Louisa. "'I will never ask you again. "'Where did you live?' "'Oh, we travelled about the country "'and had no fixed place to live in. "'Father's a—' "'Sissy whispered the awful word. "'A clown!' "'To make the people laugh,' said Louisa, "'with a nod of intelligence. "'Yes, but they wouldn't laugh sometimes. "'And then Father cried. "'Lately—' They very often wouldn't laugh, and he used to come home despairing. Father's not like most. Those who didn't know him as, a, as well as I do, and didn't love him as dearly as I do, might believe he was not quite right. Sometimes they played tricks upon him. They never knew how he felt them, and shrunk up when he was alone with me. He was far, far timider than they thought. "'And you were his comfort through everything?' "'She nodded, with the tears rolling down her face. "'I hope so. "'And father said I was. 
It was because he grew so scared and trembling, and because he felt himself to be a poor, weak, ignorant, helpless man, those used to be his words, that he wanted me so much to know a great deal and be different from him. I used to read to him to cheer his courage, and he was very fond of that. They were wrong books. I am never to speak of them here, but we didn't know there was any harm in them. And he liked them, said Louisa, with her searching gaze on Sissy all the time. Oh, very much. They kept him many times from what did him real harm. And often, and often of a night he used to forget all his troubles, and wondering whether the Sultan would let the lady go on with the story, or would have her head cut off before it was finished. "'And your father was always kind, to the last?' asked Louisa, contravening the great principle, and wondering very much. "'Always, always,' returned Sissy, clasping her hands, "'kinder than I can tell.' He was angry only one night, and that was not to me, but Mary Legs, Mary Legs, she whispered the awful fact, is his performing dog. Why was he angry with the dog? Louisa demanded. Father, soon after they came home from performing, told Mary Legs to jump up on the backs of the two chairs and stand across them, which is one of his tricks. He looked at Father and didn't do it at once. Everything of father's had gone wrong that night, and he hadn't pleased the public at all. He cried out that the very dog knew he was failing, and had no compassion on him. Then he beat the dog, and I was frightened and said, Father, father, pray don't hurt the creature who is so fond of you. Oh, heaven forgive you, father, stop. And he stopped, and the dog was bloody, and father lay down crying on the floor with the dog in his arms and the dog licked his face. Louisa saw that she was sobbing, and going to her kissed her, took her hand and sat down beside her. Finish by telling me how your father left you, Sissy. Now that I have asked you so much, tell me the end. The blame, if there is any blame, is mine, not yours. My dear Miss Louisa, said Sissy, covering her eyes and sobbing yet, I came home from school that afternoon and found poor father just come home, too, from the booth. And he sat rocking himself over the fire, as if he was in pain, and I said, Have you hurt yourself, father? As he did sometimes, like they all did, and he said, A little, my darling. And when I came to stoop down and look up at his face, I saw he was crying. The more I spoke to him, the more he hid his face. And at first he shook all over and said nothing but my darling and my love. Here Tom came lounging in and stared at the two with a coolness not particularly savoring of interest in anything but himself, and not much of that at present. "'I'm asking Sissy a few questions, Tom,' observed his sister. You have no occasion to go away, but don't interrupt us for a moment, Tom, dear. Oh, very well, returned Tom. Only father has uh, brought old Bounderby home, and I want you to come into the drawing-room, because if you come, there's a good chance of old Bounderby's asking me to dinner, and if you don't, there's none. I'll come directly. I'll wait for you, said Tom. 
to make sure.' Sissy resumed in a lower voice. At last poor father said that he had given no satisfaction again, and never did give any satisfaction now, and that he was a shame and a disgrace, and I should have done better without him all along. I said all the affectionate things to him that came into my heart, and presently he was quiet, and I sat down by him and told him all about the school and everything that had been said and done there. When I had no more left to tell, he put his arms round my neck and kissed me a great many times. Then he asked me to fetch some of the stuff he had used for the little hurt he had had, and to get it at the best place which was at the other end of the town from there, and then, after kissing me again, he let me go. When I had gone downstairs, I turned back that I might be a little bit more company to him yet and looked in at the door and said, "'Father, dear, shall I take merry legs?' Father shook his head and said, "'No, sissy, no. Take nothing that's known to be mine, my darling.' And I left him sitting by the fire. Then the thought must have come upon him, poor, poor father, of going away to try something for my sake, for when I came back he was gone.' "'I say, look sharp for old Bounderby Lou,' Tom remonstrated. "'There's nothing more to tell, Miss Louisa. "'I kept the nine oils ready for him, and I, I, I know he will come back. "'Every letter that I see in Mr. Gradgrind's hands "'takes my breath away and blinds my eyes, for I think it comes from father.' or from Mr. Sleary about father. Mr. Sleary promised to write as soon as, as ever father should be heard of, and I trust him to keep his word. Do look sharp for old Bounderby Lou, said Tom, with an impatient whistle. He'll be off if you don't look sharp. After this, whenever Sissy dropped a curtsy to Mr. Gradgrind in the presence of his family, and said in a faltering way, "'I beg your pardon, sir, for being troublesome, but have you had any letter yet about me?' Louisa would suspend the occupation of the moment, whatever it was, and look for a reply as earnestly as Sissy did, and when Mr. Gradgrind regularly answered, "'No, Jupe, nothing of the sort,' the trembling of Sissy's lip would be repeated in Louisa's face, and her eyes would follow Sissy with compassion to the door.' Mr. Gradgrind usually improved these occasions by remarking when she was gone that if Jupe had been properly trained from an early age, she would have demonstrated to herself on sound principles the baselessness of these fantastic hopes. Yet it did seem, though not to him, for he saw nothing of it, as if fantastic hope could take as strong a hold as fact. This observation must be limited exclusively to his daughter. As to Tom, he was becoming that not unprecedented triumph of calculation which is usually at work on number one. As to Mrs. Gradgrind, if she said anything on the subject, she would come a little way out of her wrappers, like a feminine dormouse, and say, "'Good gracious, bless me, how my poor head is vexed and worried by that girl, Jupe's so pr 
perseveringly asking over and over again about her tiresome letters upon my word and honour i seem to be fated and destined and ordained to live in the midst of things that i am never to hear the last of it really is a most extraordinary circumstance that appears as if i never was to hear the last of anything at about this point mr gradgrind's eye would fall upon her and under the influence of that wintry piece of fact she would become torpid again chapter ten stephen blackpool i entertain a weak idea that the english people are as hard worked as any people upon whom the sun shines i acknowledge to this ridiculous idiosyncrasy as a reason why i would give them a little more play in the hardest working part of coketown in the innermost fortifications of that ugly citadel where nature was as strongly bricked out as killing airs and gases were bricked in at the heart of that labyrinth of narrow courts upon courts and close streets upon streets which had come into existence piecemeal every piece in a violent hurry for some one man's purpose and the whole an unnatural family shouldering and trampling and pressing one another to death in that last close nook of this great exhausted receiver where the chimneys for want of air to make a draught were built in an immense variety of stunted and crooked shapes as though every house put out a sign of the kind of people who might be expected to be born in it among the multitude of coketown uh, generically called the hands a race who would have found more favor with some people if providence had seen fit to make them only hands or like the lower creatures of the seashore only hands and stomachs lived a certain stephen blackpool forty years of age stephen looked older but he had had a hard life it is said that every life has its roses and thorns there seemed however to have been a misadventure or mistake in stephen's case whereby somebody else had become possessed of his roses and he had become possessed of that same somebody else's thorns in addition to his own he had known to use his words a peck of trouble he was usually called old stephen in a kind of rough homage to the fact a rather stooping man with a knitted brow a pondering expression of face and a hard-looking head sufficiently capacious on which his iron-gray hair lay long and thin old stephen might have passed for a particularly intelligent man in his condition yet he was not he took no place among those remarkable hands who piecing together their broken intervals of leisure through many years had mastered difficult sciences and acquired a knowledge of most unlikely things he held no station among the hands who could make speeches and carry on debates thousands of his compeers could talk much better than he at any time he was a good power-loom weaver and a man of perfect integrity what more he was or what else he had in him if anything let him show for himself the lights in the great factories which looked 
when they were illuminated like fairy palaces, or the travellers by express train said so, were all extinguished, and the bells had rung for knocking off for the night, and had ceased again, and the hands, men and women, boy and girl, were clattering home. Old Stephen was standing in the street, with the odd sensation upon him which the stoppage of the machinery always produced, the sensation of its having worked and stopped in his own head. "'Yet I don't see Rachel still,' said he. It was a wet night, and many groups of young women passed him, with their shawls thrown over their bare heads and held close under their chins to keep the rain out. He knew Rachel well, for a glance at any one of those groups was sufficient to show him that she was not there. At last there was no more to come, and then he turned away, saying in a tone of disappointment, "'Why, then, I have missed her.' But he had not gone the length of three streets when he saw another of the shawled figures in advance of him, at which he looked so keenly that perhaps its mere shadow indistinctly reflected on the wet pavement, if he could have seen it without the figure itself, moving along from lamp to lamp, brightening and fading as it went, would have been enough to tell him who was there. Making his pace at once much quicker and much softer, he darted on until he was very near this figure, then fell into his former walk and called, Rachel! She turned, being then in the brightness of a lamp, and raising her hood a little, showed a quiet oval face, dark and rather delicate, irradiated by a pair of very gentle eyes, and further set off by the perfect order of her shining black hair. It was not a face in its first bloom. She was a woman five and thirty years of age. "'Ah, lad, tis thou!' When she had said this with a smile which would have been quite expressed, though nothing of her had been seen but her pleasant eyes, she replaced her hood again, and they went on together. I thought thou was behind me, Rachel. No. Early tonight, lass? Times I'm a little early, Stephen. Times a little late. I, I'm never to be counted on going home. "'Nor goin' t'other way neither, it seems to me, Rachel.' "'No, Stephen.' He looked at her with some disappointment in his face, but with a respectful and patient conviction that she must be right in whatever she did. The expression was not lost upon her. She laid her hand lightly on his arm a moment, as if to thank him for it. "'We are such true friends, lad, and such old friends.' "'and getting to be such old folk now. "'No, Rachel, thou'rt as young as ever thou wast. "'One of us would be puzzled how to get old Stephen "'without t'other getting so, too, both being alive,' she answered, laughing. "'But anyways, we're such old friends "'that to hide a word of honest truth fro' one another "'would be a sin and a pity. "'Tis better not to walk too much farther. "'Times, yes.' "'Twould be hard indeed if twas not to be at all,' she said with a cheerfulness she sought to communicate to him. "'Tis hard anyways, Rachel. 
Try to think not, and twill seem better. I've tried a long time, and taint got better, but thou art right to make to make folk talk even of thee. Thou hast been that to me, Rachel. Through so many year thou hast done me so much good, and heartened of me in that cheering way that thy word is law to me. Ah, lass, and a bright good law, better than some real ones. Oh, never fret about them, Stephen, she answered quickly, and not without an anxious glance at his face. Let the laws be. Yes, he said with a slow nod or two, let em be, let everything be, let all sorts alone. Tis a muddle, and that's all. Always a muddle, said Rachel, with another gentle touch upon his arm, as if to recall him out of the thoughtfulness in which he was biting the long ends of his loose neckerchief as he walked along. The touch had its instantaneous effect. He let them fall, turning a smiling face upon her, he said, as he broke into a good-humoured laugh. Aye, Rachel, less. All is a muddle. That's where I stick. I come to the muddle many times and again, and I never get beyond it. They had walked some distance and were near their own homes. The woman's was the first reach. It was in one of the many small streets for which the favorite undertaker, who turned a handsome sum out of the poor, ghastly pomp of the neighborhood, kept a black ladder, in order that those who had done their daily groping up and down the narrow streets might slide out of this working world by the windows. She stopped at the corner, and putting her hand in his, wished him good-night. "'Good-night, dear lass, good-night.' She went with her neat figure and her sober womanly step down the dark street, and he stood looking after until she turned into one of the small houses. There was not a flutter of her coarse shawl, perhaps, but had its interest in this man's eyes. Not a tone of her voice, but had its echo in his innermost heart. When she was lost to his view, he pursued his homeward way, glancing up sometimes to the sky, where the clouds were sailing fast and wildly. But they were broken now, and the rain had ceased, and the moon shone, looking down the high chimneys of Coketown on the deep furnaces below, and casting titanic shadows of the steam engines at rest upon the walls where they were lodged. The man seemed to have brightened with the night as he went on. His home in such another street as the first, saving that it was narrower, was over a little shop. How it came to pass that any people found it worth their while to sell or buy the wretched little toys mixed up in its window with cheap newspapers and pork, there was a leg to be raffled for to-morrow night. Matters not here. He took his end of candle from a shelf, lighted it at another end of candle on the counter without disturbing the mistress of the shop, who was asleep in her little room, and went upstairs into his lodging. It was a room not unacquainted with the black ladder under various tenants, but as neat at uh, present as such a room could be. A few books and writings were on an old bureau in a corner. The furniture was decent and sufficient, 
and though the atmosphere was tainted, the room was clean. Going to the hearth, he set the candle down upon the round three-legged table standing there. He stumbled against something as he recoiled, looking down at it. It raised itself up into the form of a woman in sitting attitude. "'Heavens! Mercy, woman!' he cried, falling farther off from the figure. "'Hast thou come back again?' Such a woman! A disabled, drunken creature, barely able to preserve her sitting posture by steadying herself with one begrimed hand on the floor, while the other was so purposeless as trying to push away her tangled hair from her face that it only blinded her the more with the dirt upon it. A creature so foul to look at, in her tatters, stains, and splashes, but so much fouler than that in her moral infamy, that it was a shameful thing even to see her. After an impatient oath or two, and some stupid clawing at herself with a hand not necessary to her support, she got her hair away from her eyes sufficiently to obtain a sight of him. Then she sat swaying her body to and fro, and making gestures with her unnerved arm, which seemed intended as the accompaniment to a fit of laughter, though her face was stolid and drowsy. "'If laugh, what you're there!' Some hoarse sounds meant for this came mockingly out of her at last, and her head dropped forward on her breast. "'Back again!' she screeched after some minutes, as if he had that moment said it. "'Yes, and back again, back again, ever and ever so often. Back! Yes, back! Why not?' Roused by the unmeaning voice with which she cried it out, she scrambled up and stood supporting herself with her shoulders against the wall, dangling in one hand by the string of a dunghill fragment of a bonnet and, and trying to look scornfully at him. "'I'll sell thee off again, I'll sell thee off again, I'll sell thee off a score of times,' she cried, with something between a furious menace and an effort at defiant dance. "'Come awa from the bed,' he was sitting on the side of it with his face hidden in his hands. "'Come awa from it, tis mine, and I've a right to it.' As she staggered to it, he avoided her with a shudder, and passed till his face was hidden to the opposite end of the room. She threw herself upon the bed heavily, and soon was snoring hard. He sunk into a chair, and moved but once all that night. It was to throw a covering over her, as if his hands were not enough to hide her, even in the darkness. End of Section 5 of Hard Times